Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this morning I have uh, the great opportunity to talk with Dr Craig French, who is the Director of Intensive Care at the Western Hospital in Melbourne, Victoria. Craig is well known to many in the intensive care community. He is the Treasurer of the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group and has had key roles in the SAFE study, renal, nice sugar and a multitude of others. Craig's now the Chief Investigator in the upcoming CTG trials EPO-TBI and uh, most notably Transfuse. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Todd. I guess um, the first thing I'd like to do is to start with your role in the National Blood Authority. Can you tell me what that is and what its purpose has been, what your role is? Yeah. I'm the uh, College of Intensive Care Medicine and ANZICS representative on the development of patient blood management guidelines, which is being coordinated by the National Blood Authority. And I'm actually the co-chair of the steering group coordinating those guidelines. Um, the guidelines, the last guidelines were published in, back in 2001, and the revision of those guidelines was needed for a variety of reasons, really including that there was substantially more evidence coming out related to transfusion-related adverse outcomes, new practices, restrictive transfusion strategies being introduced, increased alternatives to transfusion in the management of anemia as well. Uh, what was also known was that there was a uh, significant variability in the uptake of the 2001 guidelines. While within the critical care environment, the guidelines were, on the whole, uh, adopted uh, exceedingly well, and certainly some of the studies that I've been involved with through the ANZIC CTG have demonstrated how well we've complied with the guidelines. That hasn't been the same outside of the critical care environment. The other big criticism of the 2001 guidelines was that they were largely product-based, that is, related to red, packed red blood cells, fresh-frozen plasma and platelets, whereas what clinicians were asking for were guidelines that were um, clinically-based, so if areas where blood was commonly required and to what patient groups and when do I give it to those particular patients. Craig, you mentioned the studies that you've done previously in this area. What do we know about um, the adoption? You said that they've been widely adopted in critical care. What do we know about about that? Well, certainly the the study that uh, the anemic study, which uh, was published over a decade ago now, uh, two years following the publication of Paul Hebert's landmark trick study, and then the subsequent studies done by the CTG again with the uh, the blood observational group show that on the whole, with the very product-based guideline that we do, the majority of red cell transfusion in the critical care environment is appropriate in that most red cells are administered to patients with a haemoglobin of somewhere between 70 and 100 um, grams per litre. Uh, very few are administered outside. Less than 5% were administered outside those, that area, that, that guideline. Um, so we can think that we're pretty good. That doesn't mean we can't do better. Uh, and certainly the critical care guideline that's now out for public consultation is 
encouraging the use of restrictive transfusion strategies. In fact, it's going to be a grade B recommendation, which is quite a high-level recommendation. Um, really, it means that that evidence base is supported by well-conducted randomised controlled trial, at least one randomised controlled trial. And there has been, obviously, the TRIC study, which was the definitive study in this area, and there is unlikely to be another randomised controlled trial now of restricted versus liberal strategy. Um, nevertheless, people often say, well, what haemoglobin should I transfuse at? And really, we're moving away from a specific haemoglobin trigger. Really, it the red cell transfusion should be based principally on the patient's clinical status rather than the haemoglobin concentration alone. The other change in practice that is being um, strongly suggested as well, which many units in critical care have already adopted, is the use of a single red cell transfusion, single unit red cell transfusion. Certainly a decade or so ago, over a decade ago, you know, if you're going to give a bag of blood, well, you may as well give two type scenario. And actually the Red Cross Blood Service and transfusion specialists at that time actively discouraged single unit transfusion. It was thought to be inappropriate. Whereas now in 2012, the single unit transfusion for the non-bleeding patient, obviously, is uh, followed by a careful reassessment of the patient's clinical status to see whether the transfusions had the desired effect that you intended it to have, is recommended. So part of the other difficulty that we've encountered is that the restrictive versus liberal can mean different things in different studies. Not every group uses the same definition um, of what is a restrictive strategy and what is a liberal uh, transfusion strategy. How firm are the, the benchmarks? I, I noticed you said that the, the, uh, that the evidence supporting any one threshold is not, not entirely clear, but where are we at with those, those thresholds now? Yeah. As I said, the haemoglobin less than 70 it, it's likely to be appropriate unless there's reasons why the patient could potentially benefit not from having a transfusion at, at, at that level. Where we're really... the And, and certainly um, with a haemoglobin concentration now of greater than 90 grams per litre, we would contend that a red cell transfusion is generally unnecessary. Uh, assess the patient's clinical indication, but it is almost it is probably unnecessary to transfuse someone in the critical care environment who isn't actively bleeding with a haemoglobin um, of greater than 90 grams per litre. The grey zone, obviously, is in that 70 to 90 uh, grams per litre. Um, what we do know from some of the observational studies is that in the critical care area, if you get a blood transfusion and your haemoglobin is 70, it doesn't seem to actually reduce your mortality. So it doesn't have any impact upon that. So you could argue, well, if I'm giving a treatment which may be harmful but actually doesn't reduce mortality, well, why am I giving it? And we sort of exercise that caution in that 70 90 area. But you do, if you do decide to transfuse a patient whose haemoglobin is between 70 and 90, single unit transfusion, reassessment after that unit of transfusion, have you, has it had the desired effect that you wanted to do? I guess the other area that's very um, that's controversial and difficult is the management of anemia in those patients with acute coronary syndromes. 
and certainly this is a group of patients who we look after frequently in the um, in the critical care environment. And again, most of the there's there's very few randomised controlled trials in this area, and most of the data comes from observational studies, which precludes the development of uh, high-level evidence-based guidelines, but does allow us to provide some fairly good guidance in the form of practice points. And interestingly, the, 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 there's a large number of observational studies in this area, as I indicated, and interestingly, the, what virtually they all show is in patients with acute coronary syndromes, if the haemoglobin is 100 grams or uh, per litre or greater, red cell transfusion actually seems to be associated with an increase in mortality. So the bottom line is, if someone's got an, even if their haemoglobin's 10, you think, oh, I might just top them up because they're having, they've had a non-STEMI or they've got an ST elevation impact. Well, in a broad population of patients with acute coronary syndrome, that seems to actually make things worse. And it may actually, paradoxically, the mechanism's unclear, increase the rate of reinfarction. Um, at the other end of the scale, how low can you go in acute coronary syndromes? And again, we reviewed a large number of uh, studies in this area and with conflicting results. But in general, it would appear that somewhere around, if the haemoglobin is less than 80, in contrast to the general critical care population where I said 70, red cell transfusion may be associated with reduced mortality in that setting and is likely to be appropriate. So therefore, in the context of a patient who has a non-STEMI or an ST elevation myocardial infarction, if the haemoglobin is less than 80, we would be saying give blood to get it up to that sort of 80 to 90 range, so single unit transfusion, reassess, but don't go over the 100 mark definitely because that does seem to be associated with worse outcome. The grey zone, 80 to 100, what do we do? <laughs> really difficult to actually provide firm, um, can't provide firm recommendations, can only provide guidance and certainly, if someone is having an ST elevation myocardial infarction and their haemoglobin is 80 to 100, the effect on mortality is uncertain. There may even be some studies suggesting an increased rate of uh, uh, recurrence of MI if you give them blood in that range. So I would probably, what I would do, I'd probably leave them alone if the haemoglobin was between 80 and 100. I probably wouldn't give them a transfusion that's based upon my interpretation of the literature, uh, which is has its inconsistencies, so it's unable to be a firm evidence-based recommendation. There's some other groups that are sometimes yeah. talked about, the elderly patient and yeah. the patient with severe respiratory yeah. failure. We looked specifically for subgroups. We actually, when we designed the research questions for the guidelines, uh, ask the systematic reviewers to try and identify subgroups. The acute coronary syndrome patients came out strong and clear. There was surprisingly little data in those patients with respiratory failure. Um, and there was, there was some very limited data 
in the elderly patient, but not the elderly critically ill patient. It was more the elderly general medical patient, um, the elderly patient with uh, a fractured neck of femur and those sorts of issues. Um, what I can say is that the argument that we have to give elderly patients blood to get them up, to get them out of bed, to get them moving and to undergo rehabilitation appears to be based on dogma more than on fact. Uh, and this was reinforced by a large trial published late last year in the New England Journal of Medicine, the FOCUS trial, which randomised patients, elderly patients undergoing hip fracture surgery to either a restrictive or a liberal transfusion strategy. The endpoint wasn't a mortality endpoint. The endpoint was a functional endpoint at 60 days. Could they walk 10 metres or not? And there was absolutely no difference between the two groups, between those that had a restrictive strategy or those that had a liberal strategy. Respiratory failure, research opportunity. <laughs> Another challenge for the CTG. I guess the, the whole argument for restrictive blood, blood transfusion strategies seems to be contingent on the argument that blood somehow harms patients. What do we know about that harm? Yeah, yeah we certainly... When we looked at the guidelines, the first, one of the first questions we asked was, obviously, well, well is anemia harmful? <laughs> and the short answer to that is yes, and there actually is a lot of evidence out there to show that anemia is harmful. The next question we actually asked them, well, if anemia is harmful, does giving a blood transfusion actually improve outcome? And despite allogeneic blood transfusion being around for the best part of the last uh, 85 years or so, the evidence that red cell transfusion is beneficial is surprisingly sparse. Um, now, that's not to say that we need a randomised controlled trial to determine that clearly the administration of blood products to certain individuals is life-saving, and we don't need an RCT to tell us that. But there are a group, you know, the majority of patients are transfused when they're not actively bleeding and when and they're transfused in response to some sort of arbitrary trigger for transfusion. The, obviously, the way that we get the safety data, therefore, is from large observational studies. And there's been a, a significant number done both within the ICU environment and outside the ICU environment, looking at a variety of endpoints. Now, the red cell transfusion has been independently associated with increased mortality and increased morbidity. The morbidity has, has been for a variety of infectious outcomes, organ dysfunction, um, uh, tumour recurrence, all sorts of things have been postulated as being related to the administration of allogeneic red cells. In addition to that, with less commonly with red cells, but with plasma and platelets, transfusion-related acute lung injury, with all blood products, transfusion-associated circulatory overload, and also the rare infectious complications as well. 
what's frequently overlooked in the adverse events of transfusion are the system errors. The most serious and life-threatening adverse events related trans to transfusion aren't actually related to the blood itself, but are related to the fact that you might get the wrong blood. Because errors in the process can occur from the moment your, your blood is taken for cross-match to the moment when the unit of blood is actually administered to you. And the uh, registry data uh, collected by um, in the UK and also in Australia clearly shows that the most complications of transfusion are actually related potentially to the harm induced by the wrong system error and the wrong blood. In the critical care environment, certainly the uh, major studies looking at harm related to transfusion were done in the early part of the 21st century and were done by Jean-Louis Vincent which, uh, uh, in his group and also by Harold Corbin and his group, which was the so-called ABC study, um, with one published in Intensive Care Medicine, obviously, Jean-Louis, and one published in Critical Care Medicine. And in their cohorts of patients, they were able to show quite nicely that there was harm associated with transfusion in um, propensity-matched populations. So observational studies trying to reduce the risk of bias by controlling for as many confounders as they could showed that there was mortality and other, and other um, adverse events, infectious tumour accounts, circuitry, all those sorts of things. Interestingly, in the uh, John Lewis repeated that study a couple of years ago and wasn't able to find the same outcome. And there's been a whole re lot of reasons postulated for that, including the introduction of universal leukodepletion, um, whether transfusion practice has changed, whether they just controlled for different variables or not. And also, recently, there was another study which looked at the effect of transfusion on outcome, but actually you did daily assessments of organ severity and as against the usual baseline and adjusted for severity of illness throughout the course. And that showed in that study that the effect, the harmful effect of transfusion was perhaps less than we originally thought. So it's a bit uncertain, um, but I think there is fairly consistent and strong evidence that red cell transfusion is associated with harm. After all, it is a transplant. Remember, it is a transplant. It is associated with potential harm. And not only from the product itself, but with also the fact that there could be errors related to the administration as well. And therefore, in general, if we, we only should, like any therapy, we should only be administering it if the benefits are greater than the risks. And the difference with red cell transfusion is that often the benefits are a bit unclear. Is there a clear understanding of the mechanism of the harm? Uh, there's two, there's a number of um, uh, mechanisms have been postulated. The most, uh, and principally they've related to either the presence of white cells in the, um, in the transfused blood product and their ability to induce some sort of um, 
immunosuppressive states, so-called transfusion-related immunomodulation or TRIM, uh, and secondly, obviously, the something that's of interest to us as tra- investigators for transfuse is the influence of age of blood on outcome as well, and that in that stored blood it leads to a, leads to store, so-called storage lesion, but the whole variety of um, metabolic and uh, chemical changes within the stored blood, and that as well then induces physiological changes within the uh, within the recipient which lead to poor outcome as well. So they're the two main postulates as to the mechanisms of harm for transfused red cells. You mentioned the transfuse study and the the concept of new versus old blood. Um, Can you tell us about that study and and what you're hoping to find? Yeah, well, the transfuse study is a uh, NHMRC-funded multi-centre randomised controlled trial uh, that has been run through the ANZIC Research Centre here in Melbourne and obviously endorsed by the ANZIC's CTG. We aim to recruit around 5,000 patients in that study to determine the effect, if any, of the age of blood on 90-day mortality. It's It's a very pragmatic study. It's not specifying how old the blood has to be. So what we are saying is that if you're randomised to the fresher group, as against the standard care group, you will get the freshest available blood that's in your blood bank at that time. The standard group, standard practice, is to take the oldest bag out first. So use what's oldest first. So, And we know from a pile study that we've done, we've got good separation, about seven days difference between the median age of the two groups. And this is a, a pragmatic study. It's real world. We want to actually do something that's reproducible in the real world. There's two other large studies going on internationally at the moment. The ABLE study, which has been done in Canada, and which is uh, Paul Hebert's study, they are specifying a particular age. So you have to have blood... Group A has blood less than a certain age, and Group B has blood greater than a certain age. Logistically, that's very difficult to do, and those difficulties are now being reflected in their recruitment rate. Similarly, the recess study is going on in cardiac surgical patients because there was some observational data published in New England a few years ago about cardiac surgical patients and age of blood. Only really relevant to that population of patients, and we're actually not looking at cardiac surgical patients in uh, specifically in our um, in our study, looking at more general ICU population. Of those three studies, what concerns us most is that they're all only very small sample sizes, 2,000 patients maximum. We think you need 5,000 patients. And I don't think, unfortunately, they're going to actually sufficiently answer the question. Um, If they do find that there's no difference, the criticism is that you're underpowered. There was a recent paper published, I think, late last year in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine that, uh, that looked at old blood versus new blood and found no... No difference in markers of immune function, coagulation and respiratory function. Does yeah. that um, change your thinking at all? It, it not, this doesn't really change our thinking. What that paper's done is, is explored some mechanisms, potential biological mechanisms of how age of blood might be harmful, and said, well, 
it's unlikely to be this or it's unlikely to be that. It hasn't actually doesn't actually say that age of blood, the age of blood is harmful or not. It was really a mechanistic paper exploring how it might actually induce harm rather than actu- rather than act- attempting to determine whether harm occurred or not. They're important papers to be done, obviously, because in any uh, large randomised controlled trial, it's important to have an understanding of if there is a difference in outcome, what that outcome is due to. And certainly in our paper, in our study, there will be numerous sub-studies uh, occurring looking at some of those various mechanistic questions. So if there is a difference observed, we might be able to better explain why it actually occurred. The, one of the interesting things about anemia in intensive care is why it actually happens. Is there, is there an understanding of why patients become anemic in intensive care? There's a much better understanding than we used to have. Um, I guess the first, obviously we exclude the patients first that, are, that have had acute bleeding because it's fairly obvious why they've become anemic. But certainly we know that uh, from a lot of observational studies, the majority of intensive care patients by day seven are anemic, something like 90% or something along those lines. And the reasons for it, like everything, are multifactorial. Initially, one of the major causes for um, the reduction in hemoglobin is probably dilutional and related to, this is in the sort of first 24 to 48 hours, and related to fluid resuscitation within the intensive care within the intensive care unit. The uh, next and often talked about reason for anemia is obviously frequent blood sampling, and there's been a large number of studies which have sort of quantified how much blood has been lost. Most of them actually done probably in the 1990s and early part of, of uh, the last decade, and. The, our patients do lose a reasonable amount of blood, probably somewhere in the order of 100 to 120 mils a day, for a variety of reasons, for sampling, uh, invasive procedures. You lose a bit of blood every time you crash a hemofilter, all those sorts of things. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of occult blood loss, which, which does occur as well. And then finally we've got, and probably where our understanding of the anemia of critical illness has expanded most in the last uh, decade has really been the sort of impaired red cell production. Now, traditionally, this was thought to be principally related to um, erythropoietin, and erythropoietin production, as we know, in critical illness is reduced, and therefore with impaired uh, erythropoietin synthesis, um, which occurs in inflammation, you get less um, bone marrow production of, um, of, uh, of red cells. But what's also become much, well, it was only discovered in 2000, so it's only been in the last decade or so we've known, is the role of hepcidin. And hepcidin is a 25 um, amino acid peptide produced by the liver, which is basically the gatekeeper of iron metabolism in the body. And effectively, what happens when your body makes hepcidin is that it, um, it promotes, uh, it reduces iron absorption from the gut and it reduces iron release from macrophages. So there's less available iron. If there's less available iron, 
you can't make more red cells. Um, so there's this whole now um, potential for research area in the role of hepcidin and the role of iron and iron supplementation in critical illness. It's not quite as straightforward as it, as it um, looks because our patients are also possibly iron deficient, um, mainly because of potentially of blood loss. And iron deficiency actually causes a decrease in hepcidin secretion because if your hepcidin is decreased, then you will be absorbing more iron from the um, gut and your macrophages will be releasing more iron into the circulation. So I think that what's probably going to happen and what I would like to personally be involved with over the next um, decade or so, but it takes that long to do these things, is to get a much better understanding of iron metabolism in the critically ill and the role of iron supplementation in the treatment of anemia in the critically ill. And possibly, and, and the guide for that will be getting a better understanding of iron stores and particularly the role of hepcidin and measurement of hepcidin levels and those sorts of things. So it might be that in a few years' time we're not giving as much red cell transfusions but we're giving more iron. And that's a lot easier to give now because there's now iron carboxy maltose uh, which doesn't have anywhere near the number of nasty side effects that um, old intravenous iron did. Just finally, the um, obviously prevention is better than cure. Yeah. Um, what are your strategies for reducing blood loss in the intensive care unit? For preventing anemia, shall I say? Preventing anemia, yeah. I guess the, there are a variety of strategies that can be employed. I, I think the most significant, uh, at a personal level, the most significant thing is limiting the amount of fluid resuscitation we give our patients. Um, now, that might sound a little bit strange, uh, but if I have a patient that's come in with severe sepsis and who is hypotensive, they were normovolemic only a few hours ago and I'm not quite sure why now they need 10 litres of fluid resuscitation so perhaps we can limit the amount of fluid and maybe use a bit more vasopressor but that's just opinion rather than based on any sort of fact and just challenging the dogma a bit about why we have to give litres and litres of fluid to people when we resuscitate them in the absence of overt and all you know, the whole sort of third space losses and all that sort of stuff that we were taught as students which may or may not be true um, and but then next obviously is limiting the amount of, uh, of blood testing that we do. Uh, we do a lot of testing. I mean, many of our patients have daily or twice daily uh, routine biochemistry and hematology, and then countless blood gases throughout the day, often 10, 12 blood gases throughout the day, all of which are usually associated with a um, a fairly significant amount of blood wastage. So I think that better education of uh, both medical and nursing staff around those around those areas is probably the way to go in terms of... Um, but that's only just touching you know, a little bit. Obviously, we can't do a lot about the reduced secretion. We can't do a lot at this stage about the hepcidin issues, the underlying metabolic issues that we can't, we can't influence. So, yes, we can be attentive, but I think our patients are going to become anemic because that's the tele teleological response to critical illness. So we can do our best, but they'll still become patients with anemia. 
Well, Craig, it's, uh, it sounds like we've come a long way in our understanding in recent years, yeah. uh, and it sounds like there's some exciting opportunities. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks a lot. More podcasts like this one can be found at our website, www.crit-iq.com.au. Thank you.